If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, just flag one of the guys coming up the aisle right now and they'll put a Bible in your hand marked to our passage. If you don't own a Bible, please make that one a gift from the Lord to you today. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. We'll pick things up in verse uh, 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But, what, by what, but while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, you, um, in your word, describe Jesus by your Holy Spirit as the indescribable gift, and we have found him to be exactly that. And with these Christmas seasons and Easter and indeed every day as we're indwelt by your Holy Spirit and you take us deeper and deeper and deeper into the awe and the majesty of these truths and of these realities and yet in all of it there is a sense that we are merely scratching the surface. And Father, I suppose that none of us will have a full appreciation of what it is that Jesus did in terms of sacrifice and merely coming into this world, let alone ultimately being crucified until one day we stand in the glory of that heaven that he left. And then, Lord, it'll dawn on us in some uh, measure as mere human beings to say nothing of the very Son of God leaving that glory for us. We thank you for our Savior this morning. We thank you for the gift that you have made him to us. We thank you for the difference, again an indescribable difference, that that gift has made in our lives. We pray for each person that stands before you right now that is not yet a Christian. And we pray that something of your message today would speak to their heart of the truth of it, the reality of it, their need for it, Lord, and that they would make that wonderful surrender to you this morning. We pray for that work of your Holy Spirit in all of our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I have been a, a pastor at Calvary Chapel Modesto now for over 33 years, which means that I have taught uh, to the same congregation uh, 33 different Christmas messages. And by the time you've been able to do that for 33 years, you've just about... Um, uh, examined the birth of Christ from every conceivable angle. 
And when you find yourself as a pastor in the place of having taught so many years to the same congregation concerning a particular subject, there's a couple different temptations that kind of overtake you, and one of which is to find something kind of novel and new, some angle that we haven't quite uh, explored yet related uh, to the birth, something like uh, the birth of Jesus uh, through the eyes of one of the lambs at the manger. Uh, or, or you do what uh, I am, am prone to by nature to uh, tend to do, and that is to go uh, right again to the core and the heart uh, of the message and what it really means. In my Bible uh, preparation for sermons, um, the very first thing I do with any kind of a passage or theme that I'm dealing with uh, it is internal in, in, in me, it is, it's just innate, uh, to find what is the single great point that God is bringing forth here, and then to bring that forth and, and then to support it with what Paul or the Holy Spirit and, uh, provides uh, around it. I'm not very good at playing around with the edges of something and then, and then neglecting the core. Of, of what God is trying to communicate. And so this morning, with a desire that for each of us who've been Christians, and perhaps Christians for a very long time, that the reminder of familiar things will give us an even deeper and a fresher, a fresh appreciation for these truths. But always with a desire on these holiday uh, services, my heart goes out to the one, if there's but one, that has never ever heard the true meaning of Christmas. And I think that in the culture that we live in, in the world that we live in, the necessity of keeping this simple and keeping this focused is more important than ever because I think it's getting harder and harder for people to understand what Christmas is really, really about. And so that's what we'll be uh, looking at uh, this morning. Christmas is, as we see in verse 21, a celebration of the birth of a Savior. Christmas is not the celebration of the birth of a lawyer or a politician or an entertainer or an athlete or a philosopher or a military leader or an economist or a scientist. When God looks at mankind, when He looks at you and I individually, when He looks at the whole kind of boiling mass of man, mankind in history and uh, the seven billion or so that are in the world here uh, today, when He looks at us, when He looks at you and me, He recognizes that our greatest need is not for a political leader, uh, and, uh, but our greatest need is for a Savior. Exactly as Luke put it in his gospel, in the parallel account of Jesus' birth, Luke chapter 2, and then the angel said to the shepherds, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, that is Bethlehem, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And I think that it's important to stop at least annually and to give some consideration to the strength and to the weight of the word uh, Savior as it's used in Luke's gospel, or the word save it's, as it's used in verse 21 here in Matthew, and to realize that the Holy Spirit's use of the word Savior and save is not uh, accidental, it's not incidental. God is not engaging in hyperbole when He uses the word. He's not being melodramatic 
when he declares and as he looks at mankind and you and me individually that we are in need of a Savior. The words that he uses here, Savior and uh, to save, they're intended to communicate to us the danger that we are, are in, to communicate an urgency related to that danger, to uh, create an alarm within our heart over our uh, condition. And one of the things that I think can happen, even uh, for a person that doesn't know the Lord, and even within uh, a culture, we can begin to use words like save or savior and uh, use them even related to Jesus within our culture until over time we don't even hear them anymore. Uh, we don't even uh, give them the slightest thought. I mean, they lose all of their urgency. They lose all of their impact. But when God uses the word Savior, when He uses the word save, it's intended to produce images within our mind of desperation, of danger, ultimate danger, to produce the image of a drowning man, to produce the image of a man trapped in a burning building or burning automobile, and how it is that they're in need of saving at that moment in time. They're not in need of a speech. They're not in need of the things that one man can supply uh, to another man, a little bit of direction in life, a little helping hand. They're in need of saving. And so apparently from the vantage point of heaven, each of us is in some kind of danger, a great danger, a life-threatening danger that we need to be saved from, which then, of course, raises the question, what in the world do we need saving from? And thankfully, God doesn't declare to us that we're in need of saving and then leave it to us to work it out on our own, to try and figure it out on our own. Uh, he, the passage plainly declares to us there in verse 21, and she shall bring forth a son, and then here it is, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so Jesus was born into the world in order to save us from our sins. And all that that does for the thinking person, the uh, inquiring person related to all of this is to raise the next question. And that is, what in the world is sin? And in my experience of talking with people and sharing the gospel with people, I think that most people consider the word sin uh, to refer uh, not to a, an ordinary kind of person, but to some kind of extraordinary wrongdoing. That the word sinner does not re really apply to every single human being, but for an extraordinary wrongdoers, like bank robbers or, or axe murderers. But how God defines sin is very different from that. And to sin is simply to be less than perfect, as the Bible defines it. Our English word sin comes from an ancient Greek word, the English translation of the Greek word hamartia. And the word hamartia means to miss the mark. And it's a Greek word that's intended to produce a picture within our minds. And the picture that it's intended to produce within our minds, I remember uh, taking an archery class when I was in uh, ju junior high school. I noticed they probably have abandoned that now. They ought to have abandoned it then. Never were our lives in so much danger as putting bows and arrows in the hands of junior hires who'd never had them in their hands before. 
But there you would have the easel, and the target would be upon the easel, and the picture that's intended to be uh, put in our minds is there is the bow in the hand of the archer, and he puts the arrow uh, uh, onto the bow and into the string, and he pulls it back, the arrow, and he aims for the bullseye. The arrow flies through the air, and then it lands uh, hitting uh, the target in the distance. And if that arrow hit the bullseye, then the archer did not sin. He hit the mark. But if he hit anywhere outside of that bullseye, he hammered. He missed the mark. He sinned in terms of his attempt at perfection there in, in his, his archery. He had been less than perfect. And the interesting thing about this imagery related to the archer and how it plays related to uh, sin, the Bible teaches that all of us have missed the mark. But the Bible also teaches that even if the archer takes and he or she uh, tries as hard as they can to hit the bullseye and they still uh, miss, then he or she is still a sinner. There is no allowance given uh, for effort at all. And again, the Bible teaches clearly that every single one of us is that archer that is sinned or hammered. Each and every one of us uh, is a sinner. Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Again in Romans 3, for it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And each and every person in this world and in this room has been less than perfect in terms of our actions, in terms of our deeds, in terms of our thinking, in terms of our speaking, in terms of our motivations, even behind doing good things. There's the sin of omission, to know to do good and to fail to do it. Each and every one of us has been guilty of sin all through our lives. And in fact, the Bible teaches that we are guilty and exposed as sinners if we're honest enough to look at it on a daily basis. No one is perfect through this life, and no one uh, is, is perfect uh, even on a daily basis. And what is the bullseye that each of us uh, has missed? What is that definition of, of perfection? And that standard is that perfect, righteous standard of God's Word, the Bible. And I love it how John puts it in his first epistle, 1 John 5, 17, all unrighteousness is sin. Every violation of God's commandment and His standard uh, is a sin. Whatever form it may take in terms of word or in deed or thought or whatever it might be, it is all sin. And that's why I think that nobody should be offended though oftentimes people are. But nobody should be offended at God's assessment of each and every one of us as sinners. If we understand the definition, uh, he's not describing an extraordinary uh, human being in terms of sin. He, He is just being honest with us when he describes us as sinners and being less than perfect in terms of the standard of his word. Well, someone might then ask, why do we need to be saved from our sins? Okay, I'm exposed as a sinner. Why can't God just do what the culture does all around us, and that is simply ignore our sin and just accept us for who and and what we are? Well, that, again, tends to be the way that our culture deals with it, but God cannot deal with it in that way. Because as the old uh, words of the old Puritan put it, 
the righteousness of God is that righteousness which God's righteousness requires him to require. There'll be a test on that. You won't be allowed to leave the sanctuary this morning until you eat a, a dozen uh, chocolate-covered old fashions, or you can repeat that back uh, to me. But what he, he puts there is absolutely perfect. And the translation of what he puts there is that God cannot lower the standard of perfection uh, as a requirement for being able to enter into heaven and remain a righteous God. And this is the dilemma that God has faced, faced in saving mankind and his desire to save and to forgive sinners. And the problem is, is that the righteousness, the right onness, the rightness that is required by heaven is perfection. But that man is less than perfect. He is unrighteous. He is a sinner. And as a result of that, he is unqualified and disqualified from ever getting into heaven based upon his own works, his own effort, his own merit. Again, as we mentioned earlier in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned. But Paul didn't stop with that. It isn't merely that we have all sinned, but he goes on to describe as, as tersely as you can the consequences of it. For all have sinned, and here's the consequence, and fall short of the glory of God. And yet as much as God loves man, and he loves man, and as much as God longs to have a relationship with man, and he longs to have that relationship with man, and as much as God longs to have every single human being in heaven one day, and he longs for that to be true concerning every human being, he cannot ignore the seriousness of our sin, the very real consequences of sin. And if he simply ignored sin as a nothing in the way that our culture does, then he would be unrighteous if he did. And the solution that he faced to the dilemma of saving us, and there was only one solution, and he was able to do that through Jesus' death upon the cross at Calvary. Because it is in Jesus' death upon the cross that he provided a way for Jesus' righteousness, a righteousness that we cannot have because of our sin, to take the perfect righteousness of Jesus and to put it to our account. And giving us then that righteousness, that perfect righteousness that heaven requires. And yet to do so, and at the same time, not dismiss sin or to ignore the seriousness of sin. And I would contend that no one can look at Jesus upon that cross some 33 years after his birth and ever declare that in forgiving man's sins that God as a result of that has some kind of a casual attitude about the seriousness of sin. It is only by providing mankind with salvation through Jesus' death upon the cross that allows God to remain just, to remain a holy God, and still justify or provide forgiveness to sinful man. 
And it is only through a faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins that allows this perfectly righteous, holy God to save sinners and remain just in doing so. It is only Jesus' sacrifice that makes it consistent for God to pardon, for Him to remain consistent in His very nature and in His holiness. And it is only Jesus' sacrifice that satisfies God the Father and satisfies the righteous requirements of of heaven as it relates to holiness. And it is only Jesus' sacrifice that appeases the wrath of God toward our sin and God's wrath toward our sin is real. He would not be God. He would not be a God you would want anything to do with. He would not be the God of the Bible. He would not be the God you would hope to find at the end of your search for God if he was indifferent to sin. And I think that what our world has lost, and it's never to me more apparent than at Christmas time, is the consciousness of the seriousness of sin in the eyes of God. And the world has lost its sense of the seriousness of sin to its own peril. And we witness it every day in the headlines of every newspaper and uh, news telecast. And I would contend that the two greatest things that keep people in our culture from accepting God's gift of salvation, from the consequences of sin by putting their faith in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior is, number one, the failure to understand and accept that I am a sinner by God's definition and by heaven's uh, definition. And then second, and I think this is the greater of the two, that an unwillingness to take the seriousness of sin seriously And the tendency in the average person's heart to look at sin and to view it is simply no big deal. I run into very, very few people who are not willing to admit that they are sinners when they understand God's definition of uh, sin and being a sinner. The far harder thing in my experience is to get people to view their sinful condition as serious and to take uh, sin seriously related to their life, as seriously as God takes it. And I think that the average person figures that if everyone's a sinner and nobody else seems to be making a big deal out of it, uh, then it must be okay. And this is the, the sleepiness that is upon our culture as it relates to sin. Even as sin grows, I mean, as it grows by leaps and bounds, and the victims of sin are piled in heaps around us uh, by the week and by the day all around the world is a consequence of these new definitions of right and wrong that man has come up with. And this loss of the seriousness concerning sin, and that it ought to be taken seriously by us. In the Old Testament book of Leviticus, in chapter 4, God gave the children of Israel uh, instruction concerning the sin offering, the offering that had to be made in order to provide for them, not the forgiveness of sin, not the washing away or the cleansing of sin, but merely to provide them with the covering of sin. And the sequence of events that are listed there is that the individual that was guilty of sin would then bring uh, to the tabernacle or to uh, the temple, they would bring a lamb without blemish to the priest. 
And then the sinner would lay his hand on the head of the innocent lamb. And it was a picture of substitution. This lamb is going to die in my place. It was a picture of transference. My sin is being transferred uh, to this lamb. All of it a picture of Christ who was uh, to, to come. And here you have this picture of substitution, the transference of the sin of the guilty to the innocent uh, sacrifice. And as that sinner looked at that animal, they knew that that animal was going to die in their place for their sin. And then the lamb was slain before the Lord. The priest would cut an artery in the sheep's neck in order to produce a quick death. And as a result, the blood would begin to flow from the animal and it would begin to weaken. Its legs would begin to buckle and ultimately it would collapse in death. And this offering in the Old Testament drove home a single great message to the person who had sinned and to the entire culture as a whole in, in, in the offering of the sin offering. And that is that sin is serious, and it is a serious business to God. And to never convince yourself otherwise concerning it. And no one could have watched the offering, the sin offering, under the old covenant, the sin offering being made to God for their sin, and could ever view sin casually again for the rest of their lives. Very much unlike our culture today who thinks uh, nothing of it. And you hear sometimes people dismiss uh, the God of the Bible or the Bible itself, Old Testament, New Testament, or to dismiss Christianity as that bloody religion as they think about the sacrifices that were part of the Old uh, Covenant and the Old uh, Testament. But think nothing of blinking at and turning a blind eye to the multiplied thousands and tens of thousands and millions who are the victims of sin every single day and the horrible deaths that are lived, uh, deaths that are died as a result of partaking in that sin to say nothing of what happens on the other side of this life. They would rather complain about a few animal sacrifices given in order to drive home the fact that sin is seriousness and it ought to be something that we run from and then condemn that and again blink at and wink at all of the sin and the consequences of sin and the blood that is shed and the lives that are lost in, in this this uh, new kind of idea and definitions related to, to sin and the permissiveness of it. And yet today, we don't need the old covenant to drive home the seriousness of sin. Every, in every single part of this world, the seriousness of sin is revealed in every cemetery in the world because it's sin that brought death into the human condition. The seriousness of sin is revealed in every hospital and in every doctor's waiting room in the world because it was the sin of Adam and Eve that brought sickness and disease into the human condition. It's revealed in the number and the fullness of all of our jails and our prisons in our own country and in the whole world. It's revealed in every individual life that's been broken by sin, broken by addiction, broken by guilt, broken by transgression of God's laws. And the Bible says that the way of the transgressor is hard. And it is always hard 
Whether I believe in God, whether I accept him or I reject him or not, the way of the transgressor, the violation of God's commandments, it is always hard. There is no escaping uh, it. The seriousness of sin is revealed in the horror and the existence of hell itself. The horror of the revelation of the judgment of our sin and the judgment that it really deserves. Eternal separation from God and eternity in the place where in the words of Jesus himself, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child. And that's the sole lens so often that the culture wants to look at Jesus, as if he remained in that manger for all of the uh, rest of his, his life. But even Jesus declared of this horrible place called Gehenna, he said it's a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. But supremely, the seriousness of sin, at least from the perspective of heaven, is revealed in the fact that it required the death of Jesus. The very Son of God and God the Son in order to provide for its forgiveness. And as Jesus declared in Mark's gospel, just as the Son of Man, speaking of himself, did not come. That's a Christmas word. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And here is the meaning of Christmas, and to give his life a ransom for many. Or as Peter put it, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. And I think that without this consciousness of the seriousness of sin, we will lack an appreciation for the great thing that God has done in sending us uh, a Savior and providing him to us. And we will fail to give God then the worship and the praise that he deserves in sending that Savior, and then tragically even fail uh, without this consciousness of the seriousness of sin, fail to make him my Savior personally. Now, like any gift, the gift of salvation, this forgiveness of sin, has to be received in order to do us any good. The Apostle John put it perfectly in his uh, Gospel, chapter 1, and he said, But as many as received him, that is Jesus, to them he gave the right or the authority to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. And we receive Jesus' forgiveness into our lives. We receive the, 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 uh, his gift of forgiveness by trusting in him as the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of that sin. And by simply praying something simple like this to God, to say to God, God, I believe your assessment of me as a sinner. I acknowledge it. I've been less than perfect all of my life. How could I ever fight against that assessment? And I also believe that you are so holy and so perfect and so righteous that but one sin, let alone a lifetime of sin, would separate me from a relationship with you. And yet I also believe that you loved me so much 
that you sent your Son into this world to die that death upon the cross and to be buried and rise again on the third day as a satisfying payment for the forgiveness of my sins and that He is the Savior and that He is the salvation that pleases you and to declare it a moment in time and no time like this morning if you've never done it to say to God, I repent of my sin I turn from the life that I'm living and I put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior today and I give you my life now to use for your purposes and for your glory for the rest of this life and for all of the life to come. And when a person does that, the simplicity of it, the gift is given, all we must do is receive it. And when a person does that in that moment, the greatest miracle that a person will ever experience in life will happen when God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit then comes into our lives and we are born again by that same Holy Spirit, experiencing a spiritual birth, being born into God's family. And as Jesus put it so famously in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son That's Christmas. He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes or trusts in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is never to be just a celebration of a season in which God is uh, merely given, but that we have failed then to individually receive into our lives. That's the full intention of Christmas. And I think one of the simply awful things that has occurred in the kind of current moral environment of the United States is that people are convinced that the worst thing in the world a person can ever feel is guilt. Uh, Even guilt for sin. Even guilt for horrible sin. Or to feel any kind of shame for wrong uh, doing, or even further, there, there, that there is even anything that can be labeled as sin or be labeled as wrong uh, doing, and that such a thing even exists. And because of that, our culture attempts to address man's problem in all of this uh, by redefining sin and redefining it away from the culture until nothing is considered to be uh, a sin at all or to simply ignore it, or by rejecting the idea uh, of sin, or the idea that one day I'm going to give an account uh, for the life that I've lived, and to look at it and say, that's repressive, that's passe. We're on to greater things and better things uh, in, in the world than those old kind of religious concepts and truths. But here's the problem with that, is that none of those methodologies can have any hope of freeing a person from the guilt and the shame that we feel over our past sin and that we feel because we possess something that is an ongoing witness to the fact that we've been created by God and for relationship with God and as this thing called a conscience. And so we feel this guilt and we feel the shame of our sin in the uh, past sin, present sin, and all of these new ways of dealing with sin. 
and the removing, redefining of it, removing any kind of stigma related to it. All it does is just encourage us to live lives that will result in even more guilt and more shame until it breaks you. King David wrote of the misery of this kind of a life. In Psalm 31, he said, Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief, yes, my soul and my body. For my life is spent with grief, and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. And it speaks of that year between the time that he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then arranged the death of her husband as a cover-up for the adultery, the year that went by when he tried to justify it within his mind and to redefine it and to speak to himself and declare he's a king. These are the things that kings do, but he could never shake the guilt and the shame of it until finally he repented and confessed it to God. And this was the psalm that came out of it as he spoke about the guilt and the dryness spiritually and and the brokenness that was his as a result of it. There's a modern poem, Silence falls over me at the night. It covers me in a heavy blanket of darkness and guilt. I try and exhale my sins, but they smother me back as I'm forced to breathe them back in. The hands on the clock taunt me with their sound, acknowledging my lack of sleep. My vision is blurred. My judgment is compromised. Nothing can undo what I've done. The rain will not wash away my guilty conscience. The sun will not brighten my inner darkness. It will only serve to expose the truth when the shadows dissipate and unearth my face. He said, denial is no longer an option. It never was. Why do we feel guilty? Because we are. And so where in the world do we take our sin-filled, sinful past for forgiveness? Where can we get a new start in life? Where can we get a fresh start even from another person, let alone have the hope of receiving a fresh start in the eyes of God? Where can we gain a new identity? so that people will now look at us in the light of something stronger that's been introduced into our lives, a greater identity in our lives. It is greater than however much we've been identified with sin among our family and among our friends and our peers and our neighbors. And and to do so when our very emotional and physical and mental health and even survival depends upon finding this place of forgiveness. And the answer is, of course, it is to bring all of it to Jesus. And it's what He came into the world to do, and that is to provide the forgiveness of our sins. Because we recognize in the sacrifice of Jesus, as you look at Him nailed upon that cross in order to provide us with the forgiveness of sins, and we know way down deep, 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 deep inside of us that no sin that we have ever committed and no lifetime of sin, however much sin we've committed, is greater than that sacrifice that He made upon that cross. And that knowledge brings peace to a guilty conscience and it silences the guilty conscience and it allows it to finally rest. 
And this morning in this room, it's important to understand that there are none, as the old saying goes, so good who do not need to be saved. But there are none who are so bad who cannot be saved. And the Bible declares of Jesus' ability to save us and with that to cleanse us of a guilty conscience. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal Son offered Himself without spot to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so to the one, to the two, to the ten, to the twenty, to the hundred, I don't know for whom God wants to speak this morning in this regard concerning your guilt. Bring your guilt to Jesus this morning. Bring all of it. Don't bring 50% of it. Don't bring 25% of it. And then cover the rest of it with your own definitions or rationalizations or justifications. Bring all of it to Him. Every single bit of it to Him. And then to trust in Jesus as your Savior. And He will forgive you of all of your sins. He will give you a fresh start in life. He will make you a new creation. He will bless you with everlasting life. And He will begin a personal relationship with you uh, this morning. And all of this can be yours, whatever your past. I think about the Apostle Paul and I close with this. You think about the Apostle Paul. What could get him out from under the guilt of his past? As he took men and women who were guilty of nothing more in the ancient world than becoming Christians, loving Christ, loving God. And what kind of a heart, what kind of darkness, I mean clothed in religion, cloaked in religion, then takes men and women, separating them from their children for simply loving God and loving Christ and finding it a reason to not only throw them into prison, but to then cast his ballot for their death. And then imagine one day being faced with the reality of Christ that this is the truth. I've been persecuting those that are following the truth. And then he becomes a Christian himself. And what in the world does a man like that do with his guilt? That isn't just physical. It isn't just a, a, a carnal man and, or a woman engaging in all of the sins uh, of life. But here is something that is spiritual. He has now come into the family of God, having murdered people who were a part of the family of God. It hits him on every level, a spiritual level. Where does a man like that take his guilt? The same place that all of us take all of our guilt, whatever its form. And Paul declared as he experienced the fullness of God's forgiveness within his life, he wrote as an encouragement to every single person who would ever hesitate at the door of salvation from entering in on the basis of the greatness of their sin. When he wrote to Timothy and he said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Christ Jesus might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life, 
And now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And Paul said, if any of you stop and hesitate, at the moment of that door from entering into the forgiveness and salvation that God has for you, he said, one of the reasons that God saved me and used me was to give you hope that what he did for me, he will absolutely do for you as well. And if you have never made Jesus your Savior today and would love to do so, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service and they'd love to pray with you to receive this indescribable, multifaceted, ever-giving, now and forever gift that is Jesus Himself into your life. And then and all of it there for the asking, all of it there for the receiving. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Father, from the bottom of our hearts to that part of our hearts and our relationship with you that we can never quite put into words or express satisfactorily to you. But we thank you, Lord, that you hear the prayers and read the prayers that are in our hearts that could never be prayed or properly articulated. And so we say with simplicity this morning, Father, thank you for our Savior today. And thank you, Lord, that there is another kingdom to be a part of. Thank you for the greatness of this Savior. And thank you, Lord, for what you have made our lives as a result of him. A Savior, a Savior, a Savior. Hallelujah, Lord, for your Savior and the true meaning of this Christmas season. We pray as a church family for each person that sits here today and does not let yet know you that the work of your Holy Spirit would be so strong on them to draw them now into your kingdom. And Lord, we pray that you would make these remaining days before uh, Christmas time uh, for us who do know you a time of just celebration within our hearts over what it is that you have done in us Lord, because of your Son, because of Jesus, we bless you for him this morning, and we bless you in his name. In Jesus' name, amen.